What's up? What's up, everyone? How are you? Welcome to the Interruption Podcast, where we have guests who have dealt with trauma or just interruptions in their personal and professional lives. We are excited about today's guest and today's story. Most of the people that have come on this show are willing to share their personal and professional journey towards dealing with trauma and interruptions in their lives. Kathy and I are very passionate about our faith, our social justice, and the effects of interruptions that have on our lives as well as yours. Every episode, we will talk about actionable advice that you can apply to reinvent yourself and have the courage to have the faith in the midst of your journey. I am Reverend O. And I'm Kathy Patton, and we are your hosts for this podcast. Today, we have joining us Mr. Abdul Muhammad, who's the Executive Director of My People's Clinical Services in Hartford, Connecticut. Welcome, Abdul. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. It's been a great day. Good. I'm learning through all these podcasts that Odell actually has other friends other than me. So I'm a little, you know, (laughs) getting a little upset about that. But (laughs) so I I need to hear from Odell how you two met. Okay, but don't be upset, Kathy, because he is your fraternity brother. He is my. Oh, I didn't know that until I went on your Facebook page (laughs) and I said, he's wearing an alpha sweater. I said, oh, (laughs) so I just needed to let Kathy know. Yes, he is your fraternity brother. Um, Welcome again. (laughs) So Abdul and I met through a mutual friend, which is Amos, and Amos works for Abdul. Uh, Amos and I have been friends in ministry for the last couple of years. And uh, Amos felt that Abdul and I, because we have such passion about our community, that both of our projects and programs would make a good business partnership. So Abdul and I met virtually. We've never seen each other in person. This is as close as we've gotten. (laughs) So that I didn't know. (laughs) We've met virtually. Uh, We've had a couple of um, Zoom conferences Mm -hmm. and he was so kind to accept the invitation to be the moderator for the community conversation for interruptions after the production. So he had to watch it, check off, and come in and lead the discussion. Abdul, that's so. What what made you? What sparked you about interruptions? And then what made you? Just as I'm hearing now that you actually never even met in person. And so, what made you say yes to being the moderator? Well, I mean, uh, after talking to Reverend Odell and um, actually seeing seeing the play, I I thought it was awesome. So um, a lot of times, you know. You know, in addition to doing like social work, I also believe in dream chasing. Like I have another organization called the Dream Support Network. And so I believe in supporting dream chasers. And so someone that wrote a play and had a story, I feel like it was something that I could get behind. And um, so anytime I see somebody trying to do something that's positive that could help other people, it's very hard for me to say no. I love that. I appreciate it. You came in with lots of energy. Um, yeah. And Abdul, please call me Odell. 
we've been through all of this. Um, Abdul, uh, again, thank you for being here. But um, tell us something about yourself that our listeners would not find out about you if they Googled your name. Because, you know, we can Google you, find you on LinkedIn, Facebook, look at your pictures and all of this. But tell us something about you that we will not find out if we Googled your name. Uh, well, I don't think I, well, maybe if you Google, you find this out, but there's one of the things is, um, I had like almost 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with kidney failure and, um, I, uh, I got a transplant from my little sister, Aisha Muhammad. So that might be something you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. We learned that as we did our research. Oh, so it is <laughs> out there. So, um, <laughs> Listen, we have an excellent intern who's doing some work with us, and she just and she gave us some information. So it is going to be part of our conversation. Okay. So um, tell us about your journey into in, into Islam, please. Oh well, I've been a Muslim my my entire life. I'm, my my name is Abdul Rahman Ibn Muhammad, and so I'm named after my father, who was Abdul Rahman Muhammad, and so. Um, Probably back uh, shortly after I was born, my father became a Muslim. And so for my entire life, I've been a Muslim. So it's no, it wasn't necessarily a journey. Um, when my father was going to the masjid, our family was going to the masjid. And then after that, um, as I've become an adult, I've just kind of like continued the journey on. You know, um, uh, it's my belief system and, and it's something that I, I hold dear to my heart. And it's very, it's how I direct my life. And, um, so yes, yeah, I, I think it's an ongoing journey. Um, you know, there's I don't think there's any perfection from me. I, I'm trying to get to the to 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 paradise through my the way I live my life and um through my actions and deeds. Yeah, as as we all are, as we all are. Any, you know, as a young person, any temptations to walk away from your faith and try something different or not go to mosque? Oh, um, of course. Um, not necessarily try something different, but I, I mean, there there were times where I might not have uh, gone to the masjid as as often as um, I would like. Even now, like uh, since COVID, you know, due to my health, I don't feel um, safe going to the masjid as much. And so I think that, um, but but the the beauty of it is is that going to the masjid doesn't is not what makes you a Muslim. What makes you a Muslim is is the belief in Allah. And, and kind of carrying that in your life, you know, still praying and, and still uh, reading the Quran. And so, um, but I, even though, even when I was, you know, I think that there's some tumultuous years where I think everybody goes through when you're in college and, and all that stuff. And I, but I, but I never was at a point where I thought that it was like, um, I'm going to go do something else. It was really, you know, just kind of like uh, kind of coming into my true self. I think that, that, that that's the, the, the real journey uh, for a lot of people uh, is that, yeah. you know, you know, our parents are trying to teach us something and and they, they expose us to different things. But I think that it does take time for men in particular. And I, I can speak for men and me in particular uh, to find who we really are and, and feel comfortable with that. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like everybody. And I grew up in uh, White Plains, New York, and then I moved to Connecticut, went to high school at Hall High School. And so it's not like there was like a lot of Muslims around. I went to school in Mississippi, which is like the Bible Belt. And so you have to have a certain conviction in your faith, 
Um, when you're like one of one or one of three or one of whatever, wherever you are, people are watching. People, you know, my name by itself makes your eyebrow raise, you know, <laughs> depending on where you are. So I think okay. that um, I'm, I'm very cognizant of that. I've always been. And I and and, I, and I'll be honest, like I, I I won't say I've always been a and even now I wouldn't say I'm like a poster child for religion, but I know that just by my name alone, when you say Abdul Rahman Muhammad, it does you you know that I'm something, and and I and I try to carry myself in a way that it doesn't um, make us look bad as a as a whole. Thank you, Thank you. Abdul. You mentioned college, so. You went to college in Atlanta, right? Uh, I got my master's degree in Atlanta. I got my bachelor's degree in, in Mississippi at Tougaloo College. Okay. So it was when in Atlanta when you left and you had to come back home because I'm curious why anyone would leave Atlanta and come back to Connecticut. Yeah. So, <laughs> so my plan, I, I, I was going to graduate school. Um, I, ha I also had a two-year-old two daughter at that time. So she lives in Atlanta. And um, I basically got kidney failure. And so that's when I got kidney failure, and it was um, it was very difficult trying to trying to kind of like be there by myself. I was you know just had a little apartment with a few friends, and and it was just like so much to it. You know, my health had declined so much that um, I just didn't feel like I could I could maintain myself in Atlanta. So I thought it was in my best interest to come back to Connecticut and. Um, I always, you know, at the time, I used to think it was like the worst thing ever because I really, <laughs> I was really a person, um, like I never felt like I was from Connecticut. Like I always consider myself to be from New York. Okay. And, and, you know, I was always trying to get away from Connecticut. I went all the way to Mississippi to go to college. I went, <laughs> then I stayed in Atlanta. But Connecticut has provided me, it was like coming back to Connecticut has provided me with every opportunity that I've had in my life. You know, mm. you can't really, you, it's all like, I, I always believe, like I'm a person that believes in destiny. I believe that life okay. is predestined, like mm -hmm. things are gonna happen and you just kinda <laughs> gotta roll with it. And right. so I think that, you know, when I started my career, you know, after I got my master's degree, if I would have stayed in Atlanta, I would have probably had to, you know, I'd probably still be working for somebody, gotcha. but by coming back to Connecticut, you know, because my father was a prominent social worker in the, in, the, in Connecticut, Greater Hartford, really all over the country, people know him in social work. And so a lot of things are about who do you know? Like what connections do you have? And fortunate for me, I have the exact same name as my father. You know, early when I started my people, even early in the career, I could get a job based off of my name and then, or, you know, when I started my people, a lot of people would think they were going to meet with my dad. And, I was and it was both, you. You know, and so <laughs> I think that in Atlanta, it wouldn't have been the same. It would have been okay. different, you know. And I, so I came back and I, 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 I used know, all the opportunities. New Yorkers do not like to say I'm from Connecticut. <laughs> you're from New York. You are from New White York. White place, New York. I, I carry that. But you know what? <laughs> I've been, so since I graduated from college in 1999, and I've been here ever since. And and I will say, like, um, I have a great respect and and, um, and, I, I, and love for Connecticut and for Hartford in particular, because we that's where I'm, I am every day. So okay. I, um, if I go somewhere now, 
I would not say I'm from New York. I would say I'm from Connecticut. Yes, but you're from Connecticut. Okay. Thank you for claiming this state. I still say <laughs> I am from Boston and I love Connecticut, but I am from Boston. So I'm really trying to do the math, but I'm not going to, I'm probably going to mess it up. So what year did you graduate high school? I graduated from high school in 1991. Okay. That helps us to figure out the age because I'm yeah. like uh, 47. <laughs> Okay. So, Abdul, I, we heard you say that you had a kidney um, failure and your sister gave you the transplant. You want to give her another shout out? Say her name again. Yes. And thank her. My sister, my little sister, Aisha, um, gave me a kidney. Uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, I was joking around with her one day at the time. So, when uh, you get kidney failure, you, as you guys can see now, I'm pretty sexy looking and all that stuff. You can kind of see it in my face. He but went out. <laughs> you get very skinny, you know, so I, I, I had lost probably like 30 pounds. And so you go, I was a young man and I, I would say in some, some ways in my prime, right? So I'm like 20, 25, 26 years old. I was in great shape, all of those things. And then I got kidney failure. And so I, I lost a lot of weight mm. and it was, um, and so I was like, you know, just not doing well. So one day I was joking around my, with my sister Aisha, I said, you know, why don't you look me up one of your friends or give me a kidney, you know? And, and she said, you know what? I'm going to give you my kidney. And so oh, I'm, I'm so happy she didn't hook me up one of her friends because <laughs> that kidney really does help oh, a lot. Listen, I'm, I'm glad you were able to find a family donor. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that is always challenging for people to find. So I'm glad you was able to find one. Um, and I understand the challenges. You're in Atlanta and you're getting sick and you're in college and you're living your life, and mm -hmm. this is where you want it to be. Kathy and I did a podcast early on where we talked about where we were on a path and our life was interrupted and hijacked, mm -hmm. and um, all of a sudden you're doing something you never thought you would be doing. And as you know, for me, it's been my brain aneurysm. Mm -hmm. You know, I was on a career path. I was doing exactly what I wanted to do deep in my career, and all of a sudden I have this brain aneurysm and my life has changed. So being a professional, being educated and a person of color, you're just on your path mm -hmm. and it's difficult. And I'm sure it was for you to deal with this interruption, but me being a woman, um, you know, people expect women to ask for help because we're women. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but it was difficult for me to say, I need help. Mm -hmm. I need someone to help me take care of me medically and then financially and then spiritually. Um, everything e emotionally, I just had to say I need help. Now, you being a guy. Mm. <laughs> all right. In Atlanta, uh -huh. being a guy and a dad. Uh -huh. How mm -hmm. difficult was it for you to not just the kidney, but how difficult was it for you to have this life interruption and say, I need help and then come home to get it? Mm. It, was, it wasn't, it, you know, you have I started having like conversations with myself. You know, I was in and out of the hospital and I have I have nine brothers and sisters, you know, mm. my parents. And so I'm from a big family. I've always been the kind of person that I'll, I'll get up and go. I don't have a problem with that. But I think it was the fact that I didn't like the idea where I, I, I didn't have anybody to turn to. I was like really doing it by myself. Got and it. when I first got kidney failure, 
I was doing what they call COPD uh, uh, dialysis. It was basically there was this uh, bag, and I would have to connect the bag to a tube in my in my peritoneum, and the fluid would have to go. And it was like a, a really kind of like difficult process because if I messed up the process, if I didn't connect the, the, the tubes exactly, I would get uh, I would oh. get sick, right? And so I was just like. I got in a car accident. Oh, it was like so many things that were happening that were saying like, I gotta get out of here. Mm-hmm. And so I, it, the, the, the most difficult part was the, the reason I went to uh, Clark Atlanta was because I wanted to be closer to my daughter. I didn't want her to grow up without me being around. But it was like, it's one thing for me to be in Connecticut and there's another thing for me not to be here at all. At all. Okay. And so the bigger decision was to live, like to be, to get better, to get, to, to be able to uh, provide for her and care for her. And so I had to make the decision. I had to kind of have, make the, the long-term decision instead of what I short-term wanted. And, um, and so it was difficult in the sense of saying like, as a father, I wanted to be a father, but I can't be a father if I can't take care of myself. I can't be a father okay if I'm yep. sick all the time. And so it was, I had, so I had to make the decision to be a son and my parents, you mm. know, let me come home, um, welcomed me home with open arms mm. and I stayed with them uh, for a year. And, you know, I have, I still, I still think I was resilient because I made a goal for myself to say, I can't, I don't want to stay with them. I didn't want to stay with them for that year, but I needed so much help. <laughs> Yeah. And I, so in that year, I got used to having the kidney failure. I made some decisions. I went from uh, the, the tube to I got a shunt in my arm, which was another kind of like big decision because, you know, with the shunt, it makes your arm look deformed in a way. And mm-hmm. I was very like self-conscious, you know, like once again, I'm trying to be a cute little dude and you got a messed up arm. <laughs> Nobody wants to see your arm. So, okay. But it took a lot for me to say yeah. like, once again, it's either I'm going to keep doing these tubes and getting mm-hmm. peritonitis where I'm like, my stomach feels like somebody's stabbing me in the stomach because I can't Ooh. get it right. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to get this shunt and they're going to, they're going to, you know, do the, do uh, my dialysis through the shunt. Okay. And so, you know, like I had to keep making these decisions that was in the right. best interest of me for the long haul. And so ultimately that was what was best to come home and then to get the shunt and and still be here now because i don't know if it would have been true if i would have stayed in atlanta okay i like when you said i decided to be a son i I know i was just gonna say that i love that had to be a son and versus now where's your daughter she still lives in atlanta okay yep she's in atlanta she's doing great she's a you know grown a grown woman a mother uh I actually, uh, I don't want to jump ahead on on our conversation. So I'll tell <laughs> okay, you. good. All right. Well, then I'm gonna I'm gonna keep us where we I I want to be right now. So, um, so I'm kind of confused as to so you went through everything. You got the kidney replacement, and so I'm kind of confused as to when you decided to start your own business. I I think I heard the why, but I'd like to make sure I heard the why again. Mm-hmm. But when did you decide to start your own business, and why? So, so I was, um, you know, working uh, a, a, a job at one of the agencies up here, one of the local agencies. And I, uh, and what happened was um, I got, no, a position came up for a, a, like a senior vice president or something like that. Okay. And 
I applied for the position, you know. I said, hey, what do I got to lose? I'm going to try out for the position, right? <laughs> and so I think at the time I got the interview because of my name, you know, right? My father had worked at the agency. He was a senior vice president at the agency before he had retired. And I felt like, you know what? My youthful energy could be an asset to this organization. Okay. And so I went to the interview. I bought a suit. I didn't have a suit. I have all my like my own <laughs> suit. And you I didn't have your alpha suit. You didn't have. <laughs> I have alpha. I have none of that stuff. So I got. I went to the to interview, and the executive director. I felt like um, he didn't take me serious. So mm. I felt like he was. He interviewed me as a kindness, and I I appreciated the kindness. But I don't feel like he really saw my potential. I don't think he saw what I could offer. I don't think he saw that I had I had something and he could have used me to his interest. So after that, that, when I walked out of that interview, I made a decision that I would not, that I would start my own organization. Oh, and um, nice. it's interesting because I always believe, like, like we, so we talk about faith a little bit earlier. So I believe that Allah is always going to give you like tests, right? And so, like, right, I just made the decision, and I was starting to work on my, my business plan. And one of my friends called me up out of the blue one day, and he was saying he had an organization, and he wanted to partner with me on an organization. And he had this big meeting with the insurance companies coming up, and he wanted me to come to that meeting with them. So, of course, I had that suit that I had just saw. <laughs> and so we went to the meeting, and the meeting went very well. And when we got out of the meeting, so when we went in the meeting, we were partners. When we got out of the meeting, he told me because I didn't have my LCSW uh, that he would have to be the manager of me until I got my LCSW. Okay. And and so after I finished talking to him, I was like, okay. But I made a decision. I walked away from him that day and I said, I ain't, I ain't, we ain't going to be no partners. I'm going to do it my own. Because the thing is, is that when you have your own business, you can hire as many LCSWs as you want. It's not, you know, the, the, the executive director of the other agency didn't have an LCSW. He had a he had a hundred LCSWs, and so I just said, okay, he's not the right person for me. And the funny thing is, to this day, I've never seen that person again. Really, really, like. Like, it's like, you know, they say people come into your life for reasons, seasons, or a lifetime. That's right. He came into my life for a reason to show me that I have the potential to do my own thing, to show me that I could do something. So I said, okay, I'm not working with him. And then I said, what can I do? And I felt like the the best area for me to start off with was fatherhood um, because I was I had been a young father and I did my graduate work on fatherhood. I had worked in fatherhood programs, and I felt like that's where I could start. Okay. Um, Abdul, question. Um, see, my mind just left. You mentioned, oh, for our listeners, can you please tell them what the LCSW is, please? Yes. It's, it just means that, you know, so when you get a, a master's in social work, mm -hmm. um, you have to take a test. And, then, like, after a year, you take a test, and you become a licensed uh, master's in social work. Then you take another test and you become a licensed clinical social worker, LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. And it just it says that you have uh, worked a certain number of hours, you've gotten a certain amount of supervision, and you passed a test that makes you a clinical social worker. 
Okay, thank you. So I hear you say fatherhood, manhood, fatherhood, manhood. And I know when you and I have talked, when we, we did our first introduction, I know that you have the manhood tree and you have father man father monologues monologues. so manologues so man i don't mess that up so i've been calling them monologues monologues so please tell our listeners about the manhood tree and father monologues yeah so the manhood tree is um it's 10 different initiatives that i created that are surrounding manhood and fatherhood um, so one of the initiatives is the fatherhood manologues. Um, I also have a, a curriculum that I created called the manhood trees, a group, an eight week group that I do with, with men. Um, we have, uh, another group called a little fatherly advice where we have fathers and their children come on together on, on zoom. And we do a group every, uh, once a month. And we talk about things that fathers don't typically talk w- with their children about, nice. um, we have uh, a picture is worth a thousand words where we try to show uh, different imagery of men and fathers in different ways. Um, we have my uh, fatherhood engagement training that I do. Uh, we have the dad ad initiative. Um, we have the mail conference. We have a, a, a podcast. And then we also have a fatherhood in place. Well, right now we're uh, creating what I call the fatherhood poll, which is a poll that has positive fatherhood messages on it. And our, oh, our goal wow. is to have one of those polls in every state in the United States by, you know, not I'm going to say by any time, but over <laughs> the next few years. So 10 initiatives. Um, and one of our best, one of the ones that I think is getting a lot of uh, attention is the fatherhood manologues. And the manologues are basically um, what it started out as is um, I got a group of 10 men together and I asked them to write a story mm-hmm. about being a father or being fathered. And okay. my goal initially, a lot of times things, you know, I'll just be doing something, but it's like, it initially was gonna be a show. We just were gonna do one show and okay. that was gonna be the end of it. Um, but it, it's kind of taken on a, a life of its own. We, so we did the show back in February, then we videotaped the, the manologues, then we were on, um, uh, we did collaborations with the Hartford stage. We, there was an article about us for father's day in the Hartford current. Um, right. you know, we just wrapped, we just did a show a few weeks ago with the John F. Kennedy center online. And so I there's been that. a lot of, um, interest in the fatherhood manologues. And, and so we continue to do them. Um, right now, actually this, this week, I just uh, debuted uh, a new fatherhood manolog and over the next five weeks, we'll be showing new fatherhood manologues going up Thanksgiving. All right. Well, we have your manologue. So what I would like to do for our listeners, we're going to take a break and we're going to show your manologue and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Sounds good. Okay. My biggest fan. When my kids were little, every time I would come home from work, they would run to the door to greet me. I mean, as soon as I opened the door, 
they would just come running, providing me with hugs, kisses, and the cheero. Daddy's home, daddy's home. I would walk in the door and get jumped on like a ride. Sometimes one would be riding my leg as I walked like Frankenstein, and the other would be scooped up in my arms, getting chomped on until he or she screamed. Or I would pick them up, spin them around, and then throw them on my shoulder like a bag of potatoes. As I took off my coat and hung it in the closet, I would say, I'm gonna get you. And they would just take off running with excitement, laughter, and joy. Every day, consistently for years and years, I would come home to my greatest fans. I'd hear the cheer up, daddy's home, daddy's home. And then the pitter patter of little feet running to welcome me home with love. Genuine love. The kind of love you don't have to think about. You just know it's real. Unconditional love. You know, how your grandma makes you feel. Crazy, out of control, fandom love. Like a Knicks fan after the John Starks dunk. Starks, yes! The love was so encompassing, even my dog tried to get into it. He'd be so excited to see me that he'd almost knock me off my feet with his dog love. To be honest, over time, I downplayed that love. I took all that love for granted. Imagine me coming home, deflating my children's loving energy because I was on the phone, not paying attention to them. Or when they ran to me, my response was, all right, all right, instead of, I'm gonna get you. Or if I sarcastically said, okay, good to see you too, guys, as if little children don't hate sarcasm like everyone else. I put them down before I spun them around or held their hands instead of letting them ride my Frankenstein legs, taking all of the excitement out of my return back to them. To be honest, you can't have to love. Love should always be like a hug from my grandma, where she hugs you so tight, you wonder how she got so strong. And when you walk away, you feel her embrace forever. I'll tell you, it doesn't take forever for children to change. One day they're your biggest fans, and the next, I can't recall when it happened, but I walked in the house one day and my children were nowhere to be found. I mean, they were in the house, but they weren't at the door waiting for me. After a while, I started having to walk around the house if I wanted to see them. My son was usually in the basement playing video games and my daughter was in her room doing something. When I said hello, I think my daughter gave me the peace sign. Nowadays, I only enter the house to my dog, Brownie. He doesn't jump up and almost knock me off my feet anymore. It's more like an elevator pitch as I take off my coat and walk to my room. He's like, my man, good to see you, big guy. How was your day? I was just wondering about a walk or maybe some food. Yeah, the kids didn't take me for a walk and they didn't clean up the poop. Okay, I see you made it to the room. Still not letting me in the room? Hey, how about a belly rub? No? God bless you, have a good day. What's crazy is, I was once the greatest of all time. I was the man. The fans loved me. I mean, my kids loved me, and they showed it. Daddy's home, daddy's home, they cheered. And in a snap of a finger, my daughter doesn't do hugs, and my son is a gamer. And in case you didn't know, all teens are experts at sarcasm. So now I know how much the, okay, good to see you too, dad, hurts. Listen, 
I know kids grow up and find new teams to root for and new ways to show love. But if I would have known the last time was the last time, I would have cherished every moment from the moment I opened the door and they jumped on my Frankenstein legs. I would have scooped them up and chumped at their little bellies. I would have spun them a little longer and laughed with them while they still thought I was the funniest guy in the world. I will say, when my little daughter's in the mood, she can be an absolute joy to be around and she sings like an angel. And my son, he gives the best hugs. Not as tight as my grandma, but he does this rocking thing. I'm gonna hold it for a while, I know. Right now, I would give anything to hear them one last time like when they were little. Daddy's home, daddy's home. But I know that's not gonna happen anymore. Maybe my dog Brownie was on to something. When love, almost knocks you off your feet, sometimes it's okay to fall down. That was awesome. <laughs> uh, thank I love you. that. Thank you for sharing your monologue with us. So my question for you I is, that. I know that was, that was good. I, I especially love the part when you, when you mentioned you couldn't recall when it happened, right? And that's what <laughs> happens, right, with our children. All right. of a sudden they're little and then it's like, well, where is everybody? You, yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. you know, my daughter and granddaughter live with me and, um, or I live with them, I'm not really sure. But when my granddaughter hears my daughter come home, she goes, oh, can I go say hi to mommy? Mm. And I'm like, really? It's, it's not. And since I started watching your monologue, when she does that, I go, go ahead. Go ahead. That's go right. ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Go say yeah. hi to your mommy. Yeah. So out of all and I don't Kathy, does it did that ever happen to us as mothers coming home and our kids like wait for us? You know, I, my my children did because, okay. but see, my situation was different. My husband was working at night. And so it was me, it was mommy, mommy, mommy all the time. And then, um, I, you know, you get to that point too, where it's like, oh, if I hear that word, mommy, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to that point, like, nobody's calling me mommy. Like, where is it? <laughs> Nobody needs me anymore. So what happened? What happened to that? You'd wait. I'd wait for my phone to ring. My son actually lives in Atlanta. And I'd wait for my phone to ring like, well, when is he going to call me? And then when he gets married, it's like, well, now he has a wife and he doesn't need me anymore. It's like, well, when did that happen? You know, <laughs> so it's it's a, it's just different for me as I was think watching it. Um, I was always picking the kids up. Mm -hmm. So I'm the one that's walking into the daycare or walking into the school and we get, oh, mom's here. Bye. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then it's mommy, mommy, mommy all the way home until dad gets in. Right. So, so Mahama, I have to ask you, out of all the father experiences you've had, what made you choose that scene, that story to tell? You know, it's interesting. Um, when I first you know, so I, I do I do a little like poetry, right? So my plan when we when we when I told those guys to write those stories, my plan was just take one of my poems and I was just gonna do the poem, you know. Um, and 
what happened was the guys, they came in with such great stories that I said, like, oh, man, I got to write something new because I'm not going to let these guys outdo me. It's my idea, and I don't want them to you know, do better than me with my own idea. And so I sat and I started thinking about, you know, what 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 is, like, fatherhood? What is something about fatherhood that I that I like? What is something I miss? And this the idea of me going home popped up in my mind. And it, and, it, and it was it was one of those biggest things that I, I took for granted, you know, and I and yeah. I didn't realize it until now. Like, you know, my 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 younger children are teenagers and um, they, you know, teenagers don't like <laughs> they don't deal with me. And so it's kind of like uh, I really miss. Um, I always try to tell fathers, you know, to, to cherish the time when the children are babies and when they're and when they're toddlers and when they're just little when they when they think you're the greatest thing in the world <laughs> and so because it yeah. does go away it's fleeting and 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 so for me i think that um it just popped in my mind that i wish i could go back to those days when you know when i when i wasn't changing a diaper when i wasn't when i would say to them like all right guys get off me you know, and like right now, I would really love to um, have them uh, adore me in such a way. And so, um, so yeah, it's just, it's just funny because it is like out of all the stories I could tell, it's like I got to tell the sad story. But it's like, <laughs> it's a story that it really kind of like, it, it's it really It's not really sad, though, if you think about it, right? It's a good, it's a good sad, right? Yeah, because yeah. you you have a, a good memory of of why you feel like that now. So that's good. That's good for you that you that your children uh, loved you so much that they ran to you. But now it's like a great memory for you. Um, and you know what? And it's something you can use on them when they have their own children. Too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you in order to, to tell this story, um, you know, it, it's our, our notes. We were talking about this. Kathy and I were talking mm. that, you know, you got to be a miracle worker mm. um, to actually get men to talk about their feelings and their emotions in a constructive way. Mm. And you, when you and I were talking, you were using the word to unmask. Mm -hmm. And I said to you, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to keep that note. And you talked about men unmasking and being able to be themselves. Talk about how do you get men to do that? Well, I'll start off by saying this. It's not as hard as you would think. If you can, like, so when you get a group of men together and so let, let, let's, let's go, let's take a step back. Okay. So I am a certain kind of man, right? And, and what I mean by that is that I try my hardest to be a positive uplifting uh kind of like leader in our community type of man and so when i bring men around me there's an expectation that i hold them by that they have to kind of come and meet me up there right it's not like i'm not talking to them about uh the latest uh, rap video and things like that's not my that's not my lane and so i believe that when we get into an arena uh one of the things that i try to push men my age young men to do is be their higher self i always want people to be their higher self and so i think that the the freedom 
to actually be your real self, not be, you know, I, I believe like, I mean, right now I'm really having like, I try to have discussions with men all the time about like, well, what is a man, right? What is masculinity? What does it mean to be a man? And so I think that when you really start analyzing that, that concept, you know, television, media is trying to tell us stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Especially about black men. Like I got, I'm an expert on black men, right? Us. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, but it's not true. And so, like, you know, we go through these phases in life where we are aspiring to be our lower selves because we, you know, we want to be cool. We want to be like the rappers. We want to be like the people we see on TV. But the reality is that that doesn't fit in the real world. And so when men are able to get in a room with other men and be their genuine self, and and when I say genuine, that means that we don't have to even be this hyper-masculine man. I might shed a tear. Like, I almost was going to cry when you were talking about kids a couple of minutes ago. Because I love them. I want to go back to that. And so it's like this idea of manhood is, is it, it has to be kind of like turned on its head a little bit because... Because it's 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 not it's not real, you know. It's not it, the, what they put on TV is not real. And so, when when I'm saying we got to take off our mask, we have to have the the ability to be vulnerable. We have to be able to tell the truth. We have mm-hmm. to be able to talk about our pain and our hurt and our disappointment because that is a part of being human. Over human is over manhood is human, and humans feel. And we have all these feelings and emotions that we're taught to, you know, push down and not to show them. And and so and in, and the reality is, in some arenas, we have to be a certain type of man, right. but we can't be that man all the time. And so the reality is, it's good to have a group of men to okay. be able to be around men where you can be your true and genuine self, to be the person that we were on our, on the route to being when we were little boys. But then society hit us in the back of the head and said, you can't be like that all the time. And we just started putting the mask on and we cover it up and we hide it and we become these and and we never think about it again. Right. So it's almost like there's men that they became they become this version of a man and they never stop to say, I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to I like poetry and I like I like. I like to take away, you know, the things that are quote unquote supposed to make you soft, okay. right? It's not necessary. It's, 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 nobody can be hard all the time. It just doesn't work. It make this is why we die. It's like it's because it's like we're we're faking. We when you when you're not genuine, when you're when you can't allow your emotions to come out and be real, it bottles up, bottles up, and eventually you explode. And 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 I'm just tired. I don't want to explode. I don't want our other men to explode. And so the freedom to take your mask off and truly be yourself and still be a leader and still still be be masculine and still be all these things is important. So Abdul, I, I see Odell like moving up. Yeah, She's like I'm ready. like, because we talked about this. We talked about this separately. We, I listened to you talk about relationships. So where you were saying that, you know, men, that women, put certain expectations on, on, on guys. And then we get mad at them because they can't uphold those expectations that women place on them. 
Mm-hmm. So Kathy and I was planning this podcast and I said, I want to talk to Abdul about it. And I know he can handle the conversation being in the room with two women. Yeah. So, okay. He's like, yeah, he's like, I'm so, ready. Yeah. He's like, I'm ready. Okay. So Kathy's married. So it's been a long time since she's been on dates, you know, outside of her marriage. I always go on dates with my dates husband. with your husband. Okay. <laughs> you know, dates with your husband, you're married. So I'm, I've been in this single world for a while mm-hmm. and we talk about expectations. So it's kind of simple. So because we have technology, I don't expect the guy that I'm dating to call me or text me from the car and says I'm outside. You know, I expect the guy to ring my doorbell because um, this is the age group that we're in. Open the door, open my car door take me out to a very nice dinner or wherever we're going out to treat me like the woman that I am and mm-hmm. to make me feel safe and comfortable and have fun where I don't have to worry about anything for the time that I am with him. That's to me, that's just a joy. Mm-hmm. And then being able to go out to dinner, have great conversations and have him pay the bill or, you know, if we have to do, you know, split it up every now and then. Okay. But, you know, for me, the main thing is to have your teeth. You know, it's, <laughs> oh, you laugh, but it's like, I don't care if you buy them, but you got to have teeth in your mouth. <laughs> and, you know, and then the date is, is the conversation and the phone call the next day, the little things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's me. I only speak for me. That's just the, the basic of what I look for, not texting me, do you want to go out? Not, you know, not using the technology because it's there. I still like to, you know, women my age, we like to pick up the phone and, and call me and ask me out versus texting me or sending me a message on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and I'm sure the guys that you all, you're talking to have these conversations about women, right? Mm-hmm. So kind of share, you know, what's, what do we do that kind of uh, you, that you can share in this space that is false expectations for a guy? No, I think everything you said is appropriate. So you, you're, okay. you're looking for a certain type of man. Yes. The problem is, is that certain men don't know the things you're talking about, you know, and, and it's unfortunate because you're talking about men that are your age, right? A little bit, maybe a little older where they they've missed the etiquette of manhood, walking on a certain side of the street so that the water yeah. doesn't get on your lady when a car goes by. You know, like you said, open the door. So so th- this is this is important because that's manhood. That's the kind of man that we're that 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 is missing because we're, we're what is being put out into our world is the you know the guy with a tank top on and his pants hanging low. Mm-hmm. And to me that so some people like that. But what what I believe that we need more of, and, and the only way you learn to be this kind of man is that you got to read a book, you got to be around certain type of men, you got to pay attention to certain things. And so I think that um, it's, it's like um, it's the lost art of being a gentleman, of being a, yes. a, a, a true man. And, and I think that having conversations about it is important because, you know, we want to talk to our young men about, you know, staying out of jail and all of those types of things. But it's like these other areas where they still are deficient. You know, you have young, like, so if I'm, 
if I'm 47 and I had my first kid when I was 20, right? I was still a kid, 20 years old. I'm still like kind of like a kid in a way. I don't know all the manhood stuff. And right. so some people, they have a child young and then they stop growing. They don't pick up a book and they don't read anything. They're in an environment where the people in that environment do things a certain way. And so they take on that as opposed to continuing to evolve. I actually was telling somebody the other day, I think it was my wife. I was telling her, I think I'm at my best. Like, I, I think I'm like about to hit my stride as it pertains to like, like I've worked in my field long enough where there's a certain amount of respectability. There's a certain amount of the way I try to carry myself, the way that I dress, the way that I talk, the way that I, I, I like I said, the expectation I have for you to even be in the presence, hanging out with me and different things. So I just think that men, we have to continue to grow. We, we, you know, we're supposed to be more like a fine wine where we continue to, to get better and better. And so I think that, but they, but I recognize, because I work with a lot of men too, where there are some men that they just stop growing. And because they're not exposed to things and they're not seeking those things out, it's like they just a, a tree that just doesn't continue to grow. And, and so it's difficult because, and I would think it would be difficult for women, right? Because women are growing, they're getting degrees, they're, they're, they're exploring, they're learning new things, they, they're more free. And the men aren't meeting the same expectation um, to be able to meet them where they are. And so, okay. you know, and I, so I think that, um, you know, everybody wants a good woman. Everybody wants a woman that can kind of like, you know, hold her own, that looks good and all of that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of times men have this desire for this good woman and they're not even thinking about the type of man that that good woman really needs. That's, I like that. I like that. So let me, because again, Odell and I were talking a lot about this and in terms of what your your meetings must must sound like. And then um, is it possible that some of the men that you're talking about, not just not necessarily are not growing, but have not been willing um, or able to unmask yet? Oh, yeah. Well, some people's masks are permanently on. This mm. is so some men aren't, you know, getting home and unmasking or getting around a certain group of people. Some people are taking on, taking on the persona of what the world has given them. They're mm -hmm. so embedded into whatever behavior or who they think uh, a man is supposed to be, they can't take the mask off. And Why so they, they, they've gone beyond the point of return. Why and, do you think that is, Muhammad? They can't take the mask off. Well, it's, it's, it's environment. It's education. It's the thought process. It's um, it's what they've been exposed to. It's drug use. It's so many things that you know. All the things you can think that can hold somebody back is is the thing. You know, this is the thing. They say that you don't become uh uh, uh your brain doesn't fully develop until you're like 25, right? Mm -hmm. So, but if if you between the ages of 12 and 25 are drinking and smoking. And you're being exposed to tremendous trauma. Like in our communities, there is not just trauma. There's tremendous trauma. I'm talking about the trauma of worrying about if you could get shot, uh, murdered, stabbed, worrying about if the police are going to hurt you, or if your neighbor is going to hurt you, worrying about uh, okay. every type of thing. That's trauma. People don't even know they have trauma that they have. Like some of the trauma, right. 
you know, they, they think it's just the hood or they just think it's the environment. No, it's tremendous trauma. I, I got this thing I was, and I know this might be off the topic, but think about, like, even you take a person like me, I feel like if you watch the news, you can't, you can't make that not go in your head when you see a young black man get murdered by the police, the police that are supposed to serve and protect. You can't get it out your head when you listen to the music and the music is saying all these things about how they're going to kill you and murder you, like guys like you. The, the music is saying this, and this is good music, right? And so you listen to the music and it's telling you these negative things. Then, so you listen to them, you watch TV, they tell you that. And then some people, they walk outside their door and the things they just heard on the TV and listened to on the radio is it's actually happening. their reality. It's right yeah. there in front of them. And so it becomes, and, and they don't know. So imagine if you see trauma so much, it becomes normal. Yes. And so what are you going to do when you see something so much is normal? That means that you become immune to it. So whereas somebody that's saying, yo, that's abnormal. That's not right. It shouldn't be like that. They, I might have to put on my tough guy face when I go a certain place. But when I get around the corner, I'm still, you know, I'm still me, right? Some <laughs> exactly. people they lose, they lose that, they lose that ability to be that, that there's like a a soft spot inside of them. It's gone because they are always on guard. They and it's sort of what the trauma does is it hardens you and hardens you and it, and it, and then, and then when you try to people don't realize that. Oh, how am I dealing with the trauma? Well, I drink a beer every day after work. Oh, I smoke a little weed. And, you know, they, they don't know that that's why they're doing it. They think they it's cool. Know. I'm hanging out. No, 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 no. Yeah, you're you're right. trying to make the pain go away. You're trying to make the trauma that you see stop. You want to escape. And the thing is, is that you can't escape because tomorrow you got it. You're going to hear the music again. You're going to see Same the TV thing. again. And you're going to walk out your door and it's going to be there. And so if you haven't taken it, and, and this is the other crazy thing. If your growth stopped at high school, and I'm talking about mental growth, right? So you, right. you there's guys that are my age that are are walking around and, and they're still their high school version of themselves. Mm. There's, you know, like the guy they were when they were 18. And so imagine if you're 50 and you're acting like you're 18. It's it's like it's like the your mind when you're 18 is crazy. Like, I got it. And, you, you know, know when you talk about the drinking, the smoking for the trauma, mm -hmm. one of the pieces that we tried to show in interruptions was was it's multi-generational. You know, what did trauma look like for me as an as a professional educated woman and my daughter and my son's best friend? And mm -hmm. we all dealt with it different at different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm happy. I'm drinking at happy hour because I, I can do that. Right. And my daughter is home drinking in her room and my son's best friend he's alone because he's a guy and there's an image for men so he's drinking by himself mm -hmm. and you know she, you know she's smoking and he smoked and he wasn't smoking he was drinking but we do we, we dealt with it the, the trauma by trying to mask it but it doesn't go away and it, it just it, it compounds it so Abdullah, i have to ask you so with that um, I know what it took for me to, you know, still unmask and to deal with it. How do you get the men who are listening to this show and the women who are going to like, how do I get my man in touch with you? 
how do I get my son in touch with you? With me you, personally? Yeah. So, so my question is, how do you, what do you do to get these men to unmask? Okay. You, so what do you do? What, what I, I created the, um, the manhood tree group just, just for this, what you're talking about. Um, I, I call it the five hoods. We, we talk about boyhood. We talk about young adulthood. We talk about brotherhood. We talk about fatherhood and we talk about manhood. And so it's an eight week uh, curriculum and it's really based on uh, like questions. You know, we, we ask a lot of questions, everything, every, every part of the curriculum. I ask them, what do you think about this? So we start off with a quote and I say, what do you think about this quote? What I'm trying to do is allow people to, to, to think and allow themselves to, to express themselves. And to and I ask them questions that nobody asks these questions. You know, when when we when we deal with something, we put it in the past and we try to forget about it. Mm. And so when we go back and we talk about boyhood with some actually you start off, we start off the group with the roots, right? So we talk about roots. And the first thing people realize is that I don't even know half of my roots. Because why? Well, my father wasn't in my life. And so that means that. They, they already at the gate, they start off thinking about, well, man, I have a, my mother's side of the family, but I have a whole side of my family that I don't know. We talk about boyhood. I came up with a list of 15 things that every boy must have. The mm. first thing on the list is unconditional love. You ask yourself, how many people in the group will say, well, I don't ever feel like I had unconditional love. Could you imagine being a little boy yeah, not having and that. Never having somebody that loves you no matter what. Like these are grown men. I, I've done this group in prisons. I've done this group in, with, with men in our community, and it's a it's a hurtful thing to imagine that as a little boy, nobody loved you no matter what. Just because you were here, they just loved you. And so yeah. when we start addressing this, though, the whole goal of the manhood tree is for people to let it all out to to mm -hmm. to address all of the things. All of the, the, the pain and the hurt that they've gone through because most of it's stuff they haven't thought about for 10, 20, 15 years, right? Because it's gone. It's in the past. Now we're bringing it back up and okay. we're doing individual check-ins throughout the week. And then by the time we get through it, the goal is for us to be able to rebuild ourselves and become better men because of it. To be able to look at our past, to look at where we are right now, and to be able to say, we're going forward now. We don't have to keep being, you know, where we were. Yes. And, and, and uh, so we can address all of these things and go forward from there. So that's what we try okay. to do with the group that I, that I developed. All right. And Abdul, what do you do? How does your group help these men when they fall? Because oh. we're human. We, yeah. we, you know, we fall down. Women do the same thing. We're on a journey towards healing and we fall. Um, I fell, but I had to get back up. Uh, clearly remember going to Kathy's house saying, I'll take a glass of wine. And she's like, no, um, no, you can't have anything to drink. And we're driving you home. Not that I was drunk, but I couldn't drive at night. Um, being able, cause I fell and I just couldn't function. So what do you do when they fall and they need help? Well, when it, when the, the, the big thing about falling is that the, the availability of help, See, a lot of times people be falling and nobody is there to help them. So they, they, they actually stay down. And, and when, you be, when you stay down, people do, they, they, eventually people walk over you. You know how people be being walked over in their life? 
And yeah. everybody, see, like everybody always picking on them and always on top of them <laughs> because they fell down and nobody yeah. ever helped them back up. They just stayed down there. And so the, 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 the biggest thing is when you have the availability for the support for somebody to say, hey, man, what, what, what you doing down there? Let me help you back up. Mm-hmm. And, and to be able to accept the support, right, to be able to lean on somebody, you know, yeah. to be able to look at yourself in a different way. You know, they say every year, you know, we talk, we use analogies of trees. The tree loses all of its leaves, right? And so it's like naked again. But the reality is to know that if I can stick in here, I'm going to give me some new leaves. They're going to grow back and they're going to be as green as they ever were. And so it's really like uh, being able to be there and forming that brotherhood. You know, like some people have brotherhood with people that could care less about them. You know that? Like they, they, they formed a brotherhood with people that don't care about their best interest. So they, they're willing to die for this quote unquote brother of theirs. And it's not their biological brother necessarily, could be, but that person wouldn't do the same for them. Correct. So it's, when you have a different brotherhood, when it's it's a mutual uh, brotherhood, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's reciprocal, right? I'm willing to do for you what you're willing to do for me. That's a totally different ball game. And, and the thing is, is that everyone is welcome to grow. There's room for all of us to be great, all of us to be, to, to be able to do something. You know, I had this thing, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were getting upset because someone like copied something they were doing. You know, they did something in the community and then maybe a few months later, somebody else did it. And I said, you know, it's actually one of the greatest compliments. compliments. It's mm-hmm. a compliment. People right. are watching what you're doing and they're so impressed by what you want to do that you're doing that they want to do it too. And so it's like, but it's all a mindset, right? You think that way. It's one way to think, oh, that's a compliment. It's another thing to think, that person's uh, trying to steal my stuff. They right. steal my stuff. And so I think support, you know, men, men aren't usually ones that are going to ask for support. One of my good friends called me the other day. He was in need of support. Just to talk. Hey, boom, Abdul, this is what's happening. And so it's a it's a it's a actual it's an absolute um joy for me. I, I feel very responsible to be able to be there for somebody and the hope is that when you're there for people, there will be a time when they will be strong enough, where they'll be big enough, where they'll be helpful enough to be there for someone else as well. Yes, that's right. Abdul, Odell and I try to expose in our podcast that um, suffering life interruptions can indeed cause trauma. You've shared so much with us today, um, and we're so grateful that your initial life interruption was when you had to um, get a kidney replacement and how difficult that was for you. But you made a decision to become a son again. Mm-hmm. And then your your next your next interruption was when it wasn't all about daddy anymore running to the front door and recognizing <laughs> that your children were growing up. And although that was a life interruption, we we think it's a minimal one, but for someone that took so much joy in that and remembers every detail of that, that was an interruption for you to now get used to your children being adults. 
And then um, all that you do in your agency to work with men, to get them to unmask, to be able, I don't know if you remember, but Odell said the name of our podcast today was That's My Man. But listening to you, right? And you're dealing with men that didn't have anyone um, or lost someone that would be there to say, that's my son. That's my husband, that's my man, and not to have that, but then to still be able to figure out how to unmask and live in a life and continue to live in a life with all that they have to give in life, but knowing that they may not ever hear that word, those words from someone else. So we thank you for the work that you do. It is tremendous to get men in a room to have positivity and to have open dialogue and conversation. So we appreciate that. I also want to tell you that based on your story, in our next podcast, we're actually going to have a gentleman, Mr. Mark Brevard. He and I, um, and my husband, we actually went to college together, but he works now at the New England Donor Services. And we're going to have him on our podcast because we want to get away from the myths. I know I did. I had myths about organ donation and, and thought, you know, they were going to let me die so early so I could um, donate my organs and Mark, you know, just, you know, but real, but he said, Kathy, that's not an unrealistic uh conversation. He said, people really think like that. So we look forward to having him on our next podcast. And thank you for sharing that story. And so, you know, I had to renew my license and it was a struggle for me, but I did sign on my license that I am now an organ donor. So I'm very proud of that. I am very proud of that. So thank you again for joining us on our podcast. We appreciate you sharing everything that you do and all that you do in the community. And then we also want to thank our producer Rev Kev. Thank you for being so patient with us and helping Odell with her new microphone that we hope will be <laughs> working on the next podcast. For yes, and, has um, to work. and then just to all our listeners, we thank you for continually following us. Please make sure that you um, subscribe to our YouTube station and also to please share the podcast because just as Abdul, as you said, you never know when we're walking over someone and they may need to hear this story. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.